God's righteous acts. There's a chance to get notes uh, one more time if you have not done so. God's righteous acts. Worship God for his righteous acts. And I mean, that might be seem like a no-brainer, but I think when we're pressed on that, I think we actually realize that we have trouble sometimes worshiping God for what he does, especially when things do not go away. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 14, 14. Um, and then if you don't have your Bibles, feel free to uh, follow along with me on the screen. Have you ever been challenged by what God does or does not do? I have multiple times in my life been challenged by what God chose to do in my life. And a lot of times I was not happy with what he chose to do. And yet we are called to worship God in all his acts. And all God's acts are right. All God's acts are righteous. He does not make mistakes. I know sometimes it feels like he does. But God does not make mistakes. And therefore, we are called to worship him for his righteous acts. That's what we're called to do. And the next two Sundays, we're going to be talking, taking a look at God's righteous judgments. And this will be difficult in many ways. So let us make the decision now to worship him for his righteous actions. It's, it's hard to see the wrath of God poured out. In fact, if you aren't emotional about God's wrath being poured out on the world, then you've disconnected from the reality of what that means for those who do not believe. And you need to cultivate a burden for the lost. Turn with me to Revelation 14, 14. John is writing and he says, Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So what are the Old Testament allusions for this passage? And there are a couple. The first one is in Daniel 7, 13 through 13. And it says in Daniel 7, 13, I saw, this is Daniel, in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the ancient days and was presented before him. So there was one on the set on the cloud like the Son of Man, and here we have one coming on the clouds, right? One like the Son of Man. So here the writer is calling us back to Daniel 7, and the person here in Daniel 7 is Jesus, because in verse 14 it says, And to Jesus, this one like the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples 
nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is a everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. And I got good news for you, church, because we are part of the kingdom of God. If you've confessed Jesus as Lord, you are part of the kingdom of God. And it will be an everlasting kingdom that shall not pass away. So this passage speaks of Jesus in the clouds and like a son of man. And John is calling his readers back to that to remind them of that. Now, there is significant debate about whether this is Jesus himself in Revelation 14, 14, or an angel who is representing them. And there is pages and pages of commentary on this, and I'm not going to bore you with that debate, really, because the application and the interpretation is the same. Now, if you hold to mid- or post-tribulation view, that is, that the rapture will happen either in the middle of the tribulation period after three and a half years or towards the very end of the tribulation period, right before Christ comes, um, then, uh, and it's this view is, you are going to see two harvests. You got the first harvest that we just read about, and they would say that's the harvest of the elect, okay? And then you're going to have the second harvest, what we're going to read about here in a minute, of judgment of the world. And they, they draw this idea from Jesus is talking about uh, both the elect and the <coughs> wicked being harvested from the earth and that uh, they will be divided out at the end of time. So this is where they draw that conclusion um, from that. But I think John is communicating here that God is executing his judgment on the earth through the analogy of reaping and harvest. I think that the first one is stated in summary, and then the second one, which we're going to read about, is expanded upon. Uh, this idea of reaping and harvest reminds me of Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now, for, for the Christian, uh, this does not talk about the eternal uh, destination of that individual because the cross undoes the bad re-sowing, right? So you may have sown perdition at the beginning, but because you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're not going to reap the consequences of that sin, any of your sin for eternity, because Christ has paid it all. But for those who do not confess Jesus as Lord and believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead, what they have sown, they will reap. I, I, we won't live in an agricultural area. Uh, this coming spring, there's going to be soybeans planted in the fields. There's going to be corn planted in the fields. What grows? Soybeans. Corn, what, was, what is still being harvested? Soy, well, the beans are pretty much done. But corn is still being harvested. If you're a gardener, you know you put in tomato seeds, you get out tomatoes. You know if you put in watermelon seeds, you might get a watermelon if it comes up. But you're going to get what you sowed. 
same thing in life. For an unbeliever, for sure, if they sow disbelief, they will reap the wrath of God. And for the believer, if he sows belief and relationship with God, then he will reap the eternal benefits of a relationship with God for all eternity. And this is a very important part of understanding the economy of God. This brings us to the second temple, uh, second Old Testament illusion, which is the reaping and harvesting as judgment. And the verse for this is Joel chapter 3, and actually the whole chapter applies, but I don't have time to read it all, so we're going to only look at chapter 3, 12 through 16, and it says this, let the nations store themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is symbolic for the valley of the Jezreel Valley, the valley of Armageddon. For there I will sit and judge all the surrounding nations. And the gathering in that valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of uh, the Jezreel Valley, the, the valley of what is known as Armageddon to attack the city of Jerusalem. And God says here, uh, put in the sickle. Well, that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like the passage we were just reading. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Then it says, go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And then it goes on and says, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. Talking about the Jezreel Valley, where, where Armageddon, uh, the, the battle for, for Jerusalem would take place to, to attack Jerusalem. And it says, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun, the moon and are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Talking about the day of the Lord. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from, well, Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This reaping then takes place at the culmination of, war of the day of the Lord, which is the battle of Armageddon. As Revelation uh, 19, 11 through 21 covers that. It's the de- Jesus returning on his white horse, defeating evil with just the words of his mouth. So what should we do? We should worship Yahweh for his righteous acts of reaping the harvest of the earth. Will you worship him with me today? Revelation 14, 17 says, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had the authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So why does John define the angel in verse 18 as having the authority over fire? That seems odd to me. Like, what is that all about? So we're going to explore that uh, this coming Wednesday night. And so um, if you can't be here, be there, then you can always tune in afterwards. Um, or you can tune in online. Why choose the harvest of grapes? There's a lot of things that are harvested, right? Wheat. Is harvested corn, is harvested soy, is harvested. Why are they choosing the harvest of grapes? Grape juice or rind in the scripture represents blood. 
we are familiar with this analogy, aren't we, through communion. This is my blood shed for you. It represents that, right? It's not actual physical blood, but it represents the blood of Christ. Wine also, though, represents God's wrath. So it doesn't just represent blood and Christ's shed blood, but it also represents God's wrath. And we can see that in Psalm 75, 8, where it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it all from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And then he says in Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And Revelation is the pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth, upon the, the sinners of the world, and they are forced to drink his wrath to the dregs. I'm so glad, I am so glad we drink the wine representing the blood of the new covenant. Amen? We drink the blood of the new covenant. Here, though, those who oppose God drink the wine of his wrath. Which wine do you want to drink? I pray that you choose to drink the blood of the new covenant through belief. So may we worship him, God, Yahweh, for his righteous acts. Revelation 14, 19 through 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Joel 3.13 says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the rind press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Revelation 9.15 says, from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the rind press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. A wine press was a basin carved out of stone. A lot of stone in Israel. And actually, right usually in the uh, vineyard, they would carve the wine press. And when I was there, I took a picture of one. It just wasn't a very good picture, so I didn't put it up there. But right where the vine ancient vineyard was, they carved a wine press. And it's carved out in the stone on a hillside. And then there's a lower vat, a lower basin down below that wine press where all the juice goes, right? So the, the, all the grapes are put into the vat. And they still actually make wine this way in Rome, Italy, this way. You see those old pictures of all the, the people walking around in the, the vats barefoot, right? I hope they don't have fungi, but, you know. But that's what's going on, right? So here, the... They are trodden down and crushed. And so here God's wine press in the battle is outside the city of Jerusalem. 
uh, in the valley, Jezreel Valley, which is north. And that's where the army has gathered to attack Jerusalem. And so this is that image, right? This is the symbol of war. And then it goes on and talks about the symbol of the dimensions, 1,600 stadia, which is 184 miles, uh, up to the horse's blood, up to the horse's bridle. So are the dimensions for the flow of blood to be taken literally, or is it symbolic of something else, right? So if it's literal, then the blood flow was 184 miles and five feet high. I'm 5'6", so it's up to my nose. This seems unlikely, in my opinion, unless you consider the height of the blood as the splatter of gore rather than just the liquid level. And that's very possible. It is very gross, yes. But then what are we going to uh, draw from that? If that's the literal interpretation, what do we draw from that? That God's wrath is nasty, that's for sure, and that God's gra- uh, wrath is brutal. But I'm, I'm not sure that's what the author is getting at. Um, there's some other things we can take. 184 miles is the approximate distance from Tyre in the north of Israel to the border of Egypt south of Israel. So these numbers could be representing the entirety of Israel, see, that the war touched and affected all of Israel. So it could be symbolically that way. Or if you like math, and I'm not a big math guy, so I totally have to trust the math people on this. But if you like math, then, this an- then you'll like this answer. The number 1,600 is the multiple of the square of 4 and 10, both of which 4 and 10 are figurative for completeness elsewhere in Revelation, the apocalypse. It could therefore be figurative for complete worldwide judgment. And I think that fits pretty good. Worldwide judgment. All the nations have gathered there in the valley of Jezreel uh, for the battle of what we would call Armageddon. It's not in Armageddon. It's, it's they're attacking Jerusalem. But all nations from all the earth have gathered there. And that is the final judgment. So I think it could easily be uh, figurative for complete worldwide judgment. And another interesting fact is the number also, this is maths too, could well have been thought of as the square of 40. And 40 is a traditional number of punishment. So here there's definitely God's wrath being poured out on the entire world and the whole world being punished, reaping what it has sown. So however we interpret this, I think it's important to take away that it communicates the severity and totality of God's wrath poured out. And may we choose to worship him for his righteous acts. It's a choice. Revelation 15.1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Finished. 
This is the third sign in heaven. The other two are in Revelation 12 concerning the woman in Israel and the dragon and Satan, who is Satan. This sign introduces the last of God's judgment on earth. The last of the judgment. For with it, the wrath of God is finished. The wrath of God is finished with these plagues, with this judgment. The idea of finished, it brings my mind to John 19.30, the crucifixion, where Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished. And when Jesus had received Sarah he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here the wrath of God was finished for all those who believe in Jesus. For God's wrath was poured out on Jesus upon the cross. Yet for those who do not believe, John 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Believe. Believe in the work of the Son. And the wrath of God for you is finished, poured out upon the cross. Do not believe. Reject the Son. Reject the free gift that's offered to you. And the wrath of God remains on you. So I ask you, will we believe and worship God for all his righteous acts? I mean, there's some acts right now that are going on in your life, that things going on that you don't think God knows what he's doing. You feel like they've gone sideways, like they're not working out. And I want you to know unequivocally that God is working for your eternal good and all his acts are righteous. And I want you to know to trust him in that process. Trust him in his character for he who did not give up his own son, but freely gave you his only unique son to die on the cross for your sins. That's the God who advocates for you. So trust him. Believe in him. For with Jesus, the wrath of God is finished on the cross for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the wrath of God remains Revelation 15, 2 says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its name, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with hearts of God in their hands. The victorious, they stand beside the sea of glass, which we know is in the throne room of God, and, and from Revelation 4, 6. So they're in the very presence of the God. The saints are there, and they're victorious. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Right? 
And we are more than conquerors through Jesus, Romans 8. We must grab that and hold on to that with everything that we have. I was looking at Facebook today, and it had a post that says that uh, if you want to have confidence in your faith and in your relationship with God, then you have to be uh, start not trusting in your heart and its wayward emotions, but in the eternal word of God. And God said, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that you Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, then you shall be saved. So why is John picking out the sea of glass mingled with fire as the defining setting for this scene? He could have picked four living creatures. He could have picked the multitudes of angels going around. But he picked this sea of glass, the floor, really, of the throne room. Why did he pick that? Well, I think possibly John is calling his readers to remember the parting of the Red Sea, where God delivered Israel from Egypt. He also had delivered these saints from the beast and his ways. Both Egypt and Babylon carry with them the imagery of the beast from the sea of Revelation 13. If you want to explore that more, you could do a word study on Rahab and Leviathan, and you would find it fascinating. And also you can listen to the last two Wednesday night studies on Behemoth and Leviathan. And if you need help knowing how to do a word study, I would be more than happy to teach you how to do that. Church, what a privilege. We join the saints of heaven and worship God for his righteous acts. When we sing, we're joining with all of heaven in worship. And we worship God for his righteous acts. Revelation 15, 3 through 4 says, And they sing, they sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. There are two candidates for the Song of Moses, Exodus 15, 1 through 18, and Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 43. Both of these songs are in agreement with what the saints are singing in this text. And I would encourage you, I don't have time to read them tonight, but I would encourage you to go home and read those this week, those two songs. And let them be a prayer and a song of worship to God. The saints are not just singing about God's righteous acts through Moses. But they are also singing about the song of the Lamb. His redemption of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He's worthy to receive all glory and honor and power. Worthy to open the seals. Worthy to bring the judgment of God upon the earth. This song of worship is focused solely on God's power and work. In our lives, we need to discipline ourselves to focus on God rather than ourselves. I know in our culture that is super, super hard. And a lot of times, even just our own reading and the things we are thankful for and tell, talk to God about and brag about God are things that he's done for us. 
but we need to take time out of our lives and, and refocus to realize that the world does not rotate around me. The world does not rotate around my comfort and around my, my perception of reality. It rotates around the creator of the universe. It rotates around a God who's bigger than everything, and he is worthy of all glory. So here we have an example of exalting God for who he is rather than for what he's done for us. God's works are great, amazing, just, true, and righteous. Will we believe that? Will we worship him for that? Yahweh is God Almighty, King of the nations, alone holy, worthy of all glory. Do we believe this? Will we worship him for who he is, fearing him and giving him all the glory? Revelation 15, 5 through 6 says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. The next vision is the sanctuary of the tent of witness. John is calling his readers back to Exodus 38 through 39, the building of the tabernacle uh, with this language. We know the tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly one as seen in Hebrews 8, 5. They serve the tabernacle, serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. The theme of the tabernacle continues here with the garments of the angels, picking up on the idea of the garments of the priests of Exodus 39, who were serving in the tabernacle as, as these angels are serving in heaven's tabernacle. Their clothes are pure and bright from being in the presence of Yahweh most holy. May we worship Yahweh most holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Revelation 15, 7 through 8 says, And the one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The seven angels were given the seven bowls of wrath of the eternal God. We will see these bowls of wrath poured out in judgment on the earth in Revelation 16. May we worship God for his righteous acts. The theme of the tabernacle continues in verse 8 with the glory of God, calling the reader back to Exodus 40, 34 through 35. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And, the, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
coats, we worship God, Yahweh Almighty, worthy of all glory and honor. Church, today and in the coming weeks, may we worship him in spirit and truth for his righteous acts. Worship Yahweh Almighty. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are worthy of all praise. You are creator of the universe, holder together of all things. You are holy, totally other. You are worthy. Worthy of all praise, worthy of all glory. And may we have this attitude in mind as we walk through our daily lives and as the things that come to us, when we keep in mind that you are using them for your glory. And may we be okay with your glory even at our temporal expense. For you are worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me.